welcome, Legionaries, to episode 23, Nemesis. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me today is my brother, Maniple. Thanks for having me today. I've been looking forward to talk about our book, and I want to shout out to all the longbeards out there. There's a lot of grudges to be built in this one, so listen up. Right on. We're going to be talking about the book Nemesis by James Swallow, who is an author that I like. He did the Blood Angels books, and he did... Uh, I think Flight of the Eisenstein, which is a pretty solid book too. So yeah, and and I have I read this when it first came out, so some years ago, and it, it had a lot of memorable moments. So when I thought about the Horace Heresy books, this one came to mind immediately because I like the depictions he gives of these various characters, and certainly a villain to remember. So I think there's, I wouldn't say it's a perfect book by any means, but but it did have some some good uh, some good bits. Yeah, I remember the first time I went through this book, I didn't really care for it. I thought it it had a pretty glaring pot plot hole in it, and we'll get into that later. But the second go around, I thought there were some pretty good depictions of the assassins themselves. So it's a pretty overall solid cast of characters, which I enjoy. But before we get into all that, what's been on your hobby table? So uh, still some Alpha Legion. I've got a little more paint finally on Alpharius himself. It could be Omegon. I'm not entirely sure. And then I started assembling a few more headhunters. Realized I'm a little short on the, the bases I was using, but I think I can hack it with some other stuff. So they'll, they'll blend in okay. And uh, still thankful that when I, I did a lot of the priming for these originally, I used all the same primer paint on it, I think. So I still have stuff that I can just get painted on, even though I did the priming months ago. So it's always good to have a, a few things all just ready to go on your tabletop. Now, I will say that the, the thing that's been taking up some of my time and hobby dollars is I recently got into some graphic novels. And uh, this is a, probably a topic for a whole nother day or maybe even another podcast, but when I was a kid, I, I, I collected a lot of comic books. Uh, we got, you know, Batman and Justice League and some X-Men and X-Factor and all these different things. I really liked reading and reading again. They were solid stories. But if you've been following the comic book industry for the last decade or so, it's fallen on hard times, I think. And not not just because of the different kinds of politics that have been injected into there, but the, the stories themselves are just really boring. I tried to get back into it a few years ago and found that the stories read too much like a soap opera. There wasn't enough adventure. There wasn't enough um, investigation and character building and that sort of stuff. So I completely dropped out. But then through things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, I found a few um, artists that used to be in the industry but are now out. And I found some independent creators and a few different things where now you can find comic books on the Vietnam War and World War II and steampunk and uh, mythology and all these, diff these different things that really no idea existed. So I've been kind of hunting on eBay, trying to build up a collection and uh, really been enjoying getting some, some of those old titles. So everything from Conan to future sci-fi, it's been great. Yeah, uh, the last time you and I hung out, we did some hobby hunting here around town and found a ton of awesome stuff. I picked up the first five or six volumes of the Death Dealer comic based on art by Frank Frazetta. Oh yeah, were those good? I haven't checked them out yet because the other thing I picked up was the seven uh, seven volumes of Knights of Sidonia, which is a manga, because I've, I've been in a similar vein as you. I read through all of that and I just finished it. It was a pretty solid series. And uh, I think... Uh, like uh, manga and the French comics Bond Dessinée have a lot to offer anybody that's uh, also looking for 
interesting entertainment outside of like the uh, the standard American comics that we've been getting the past few years. I mean, I remember reading a few. I think uh, they were the Suicide Squad comics years and years ago and really liking them. But then the modern stuff coming out didn't really grab me in the same way. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting getting these new and interesting stories from other places. So I've also been sinking a bunch of money into that. So I got, not only did I get the Knights of Sidonia series, I've also got the first couple of volumes of Berserk that I've been reading through. And that's a pretty brutal story. It's, it's very much the, uh, the grim, dark uh, kind of power fantasy that, that is pretty interesting to me. But, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about maybe pulling out some of my old 40 K comics or Warhammer comics. Cause there were various Warhammer series back in the old days. And, maybe kind of compare that to where it's at now where it's mostly all web comics. Was that Inferno? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was pretty interesting. I need to try to find some of those old copies, but I'll I'll dive into the black library and see what I can find. Right. But when I haven't been binging manga, I have been switching up my painting table instead of working on blue boys. I've pulled out my 40 K space Marines to paint some of them. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to, I'm not definitely not going to pre-order Leviathan, but uh, I, I don't know if I'll pick it up at all, but working on my 40k space Marines has been kind of fun. I got a Redemptor Dreadnought here on the table. I'm trying to teach myself how to paint purple plasma glow, and I picked up a whole bunch of paints the other day for that. And my first couple attempts at it were really pathetic, but I think uh, this next go around, I've got a couple of things figured out, and hopefully I'll be able to post some pictures of that soon, but that's kind of been my my hobby go around for now. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Well, I I don't think we need to get into it, but the 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 10th edition stuff has has been a bone of contention among some gamers and maybe a, in a future podcast we can talk about the differences between new 40k and 30k. And if we're going to get a new gamer in, where would you start them between those two? And really is there any overlap? Because it sounds like the new 10th edition has gone into a completely different model for building armies and playing the game. So we'll see. And I haven't decided if I'm going to get heavily into 10th edition. I had quite a bit for ninth and that's what my, my local buddy, that's what he plays. And I don't know if I want to teach him a new rule set, but we'll see. I think if, if I had a choice right now, what kind of game I was going to play, it would probably still be 30 K because that's just my style right now. My big concern with 40K is that it seems from what they're implying of their release model and their errata or their, um, I guess their errata model, their their balancing structure that they're going through. It seems like you're already leery about teaching your buddy a new game. It seems like every balancing update, you're going to have to reteach somebody how to play. And that's well, my that's my big concern. Typically, typically though, we're just playing narrative style campaigns. So I've gone years without looking at the balance updates and just using whatever points are in the book. And we don't really care that much. There's been a lot of fuss and bother about the point system where you just get a card and that's what this unit costs. And everybody's like, well, this is amazing. This is so new. This is so different. But we've had power level for years. And most of my casual games are just power level. Anyway, so you just throw together a quick list, have some laughs. And um, 
really not on the competitive scene, so it doesn't affect me that much, I guess. Yeah, and again, we can talk about this in a future episode. If we bring it up to Brandon, though, he'll just be like, eh, 40k sucks anyway, stick to 30k. Yeah, so let's not do maybe, that. Maybe this just will be between you and I and maybe AP if he even cares. So right. eh, maybe for a future episode, if anybody's interesting, maybe we can save that for uh, future content. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I think that's all I have to talk about on the hobby front. We haven't really had any heresy news since Cthonia, which I guess is fine. But, you know, when new stuff gets released here and then, we can talk about it then. But until then, we'll uh, call it good. So our book Nemesis by James Swallow is subtitled The War Within the Shadows. And one of the themes that goes through the book is the nature of warfare itself. And you have a few different examples. The book starts off with a world that has been basically glassed by the Sons of Horus. This is Gaiji's Prime, uh, described as a murdered world. And this is a lesson to the planets around it, that if you are going to try to revolt or not listen to what the war master says, you're just simply going to die. You're not given any choice in the matter. And this was actually an old tactic by, by old empires, such as the Assyrians. And the Assyrians would walk up to your city and say, Hey, um, you can join our empire or we can kill everything inside. And they would, and if you tried to fight back, they would just, they would do that. They would kill everybody. And then they would spread word to the surrounding towns. Hey, if you don't listen to what we're doing and be part of the empire, you're going to end up just like them. So with lessons like that, people didn't tend to fight back very much. And this is what happens on Gaiji's Prime, the world surrounding it. Uh, this is kind of, this takes place after the Istvan system. Uh, uh, I was going to say Prime. Massacre. The massacre in the Istvan system. And now Horus is going just very methodically back through these lands and reconquering them. In the context of this, there is a man who uh, gets on the, I think he's on the planet and he's trying to get close to the war master. And it's revealed that he's an assassin and the assassin is, he gets very close, but he's caught and it's a failed assassination attempt. And so this now kicks off a whole series of events where you see on the one hand of this, overwhelming force being used in warfare but now you see this blade in the shadows that is the assassin so what's the right way to do war and later on we're going to see a, a guerrilla war going on you have people debating about just open warfare and honor and those sorts of things but in this case now we, we see this 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 uh, power play where the the lords of the Assassinorum Clades get together and they are going to put together the dream team of assassins to get Horus once and for all. And the, they have all these different ideas. Like we're, we're just going to send a whole bunch of Eversers down there. We're going to open all the, all the hatches, get all the Eversers down there and they'll get them for sure. But they say, no, that won't work. And there, there's some back and forth. And they finally decide to put together the dream team of the clades. Now, we have, and this is 
where we get into kind of building the team. It's like, you know, the the old trope where the, the guy shows up with a, with a cigar and says, you son of a bitch, I'm in. And then another one and another one and another one. Finally, you get the whole team together. So I think this scene works really well, or this next chapter works out really well because it helps anybody that doesn't know what the assassin clades do. It helps us understand what they do individually, what they specialize in, how they operate. So I think this scene is put together really well. Yeah, and it should we should give a little bit of a primer here for anybody who is not familiar with the clades. You have the clade vindicare. They are snipers, like long-range assassins. You've got Venom, and Venom, they use poisons. And this was a clade I'd totally forgotten about because you don't see them in 40K. But last year, they released that clade Venom assassin on Forge World, and I love that model. And it reminded me as I read the book, I need to order one of those. Then there's the Eversur, which are like your, your close combat monsters. They are jacked up on uh, Roid Rage, and th- the Eviser that we see in this book is probably one of my favorite characters in this book. Oh, and the name. They just call him the Garantine. Oh, but- yeah. It's awesome because he's named after like the Garantine stars because that's where they think he got his start. He was like a, a, a child, or he was a murderer at a very young age. He was like mm-hmm. a serial killer. So the, the, cl- the event... Uh, sorry, the Eviser clade caught him and jacked him up on steroids and just turned him loose. Right. And it's funny that, that this is a, also something we see in the recruitment of space Marines. Space Marines are often taken from, if you look at the old uh, Rogue Trader book, they're taken from tribes of headhunters and serial killers and barbarians and murder and you know, all the worst of the worst. They turn into space Marines eventually. And this is another track of that. Then you have Clade Vanus, and these guys are like, uh, they call them infocytes. They use information and technology to uh, to gain information and then use that towards their assassination goals. You've got the Clade Calidus, and they are the shape changers, correct? And famously, they, they're the ones that have the Catan phase sword, and they can change their shape, and, and uh, usually depicted by a, a, a very nice-looking woman. But as you kind of find through the the book, you don't know if it's a woman or a fella. And because the assassin coin cannot remember what what she was. There's one point in the book where their coin is at the end of their rope and they're very tired and they're described as having just this very old face. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of indescribable. So it's, it's really interesting that, though they can't remember, it's implied that this is a very old being. And so maybe they've been at this assassin game a very long time. So it's it's a very experienced or deadly person. So that's really, really cool. And then finally, you have Clade Calexis. The Calexis are psychic pariahs. And Warwick, maybe because this will come up later, how do you define a psychic pariah? So the way that... I understand it in the canon is if we look at the human soul as described in the Warhammer world, the human soul is seen in the warp as a candle flame. A psyker is seen as a bonfire, and the more they use their psychic ability, the bigger the bonfire gets. A psychic par- or a pariah or a blank is described as being a void. 
So where you might have a star being a psychic, you have a black hole as a pariah. And when a pariah and a psychic interact, that pariah will siphon off that psychic power or that warp power, and it will render it inert. So I've put together a pretty pretty solid case, I think, for this. So when we get there, we can, we can talk about it more. But I've taken into account the writings from the Eisenhorn books, the Caiaphas Cain books, and the uh, there's a couple other stories. There's a, a psyker in one of the 30K short stories, and there's a blank in one of the Blood Angels stories that comes up later that I will reference if, it, if we um, debate it to that extent. And I think it's important to define these terms because I think the author sometimes uses them loosely. So like the term psychic or psyker uh, is sometimes referred to anybody who has like anything to do with anything weird. Maybe a psyker is somebody who uses psychic powers. Maybe a psyker is somebody who has no who has no soul or something like that. To, so when you look at it in terms of like the 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 blue collar everyday man's description of this stuff, he's just going to say, "Oh, that's just all warp nonsense," and "Oh, that's all that psyker stuff." And to someone who knows more about, it, let's say, "No, no, no. Technically, this is a psyker. This is a pariah." And then in the book, we also encounter something called a black pariah, which is something different altogether, but we'll get to that in a little bit. I interpreted it as the black pariah being a very, 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 very powerful pariah, like an alpha psyker or the inverse of that. So just being a very, very powerful individual. But I don't, I don't think he is defined closely enough for us to make a decision one way or another, but it's, it's interesting. And we'll, we'll get into that because it does play a big factor. So the, the first assassin that we meet is going to be uh, uh, Aristide Kell. And he say, well, here's the question. Do you think he saves Constantine Valdor in this ambush? Or I think he... he was doing his job and the two go hand in hand because doesn't Valdor end up beating this shit out of that bandit leader anyway? Well, the question is that, so anyway, Constantine Valdor is on this mission to, to find this guy. He's out in the wastelands of Terra which I thought was super cool because we see very little in the books of what Terra looks like. And it looks like the, uh, a really kind of a cool fever dream from the rogue trader books with deserts and canyons and junkers living out there. And you have even uh, later on, we'll see some like these, these, t- these towns out, out there that are still not part of the emperor's kind of purview. It, it's like a wildless lawless area, which you never think of Terra being that way, but here we are. They get, he in his shuttle gets shot down by. Oh, I guess we don't meet Aristide Kell first. We meet the Infocyte first, don't we? And or Fonterial. Fonterial, yeah. He is a pretty interesting. He's a neat character to me because not only does he analyze data very thoroughly, but he talks about the menagerie of animals that he has with him. He's got these cyber eagles. He's got these things called eye rats that are cybernetic rats that travel around and perform reconnaissance for him. So. Fonterial is a very cool character to me. There's another Infocyte in the Talarn book that I think is done a little better, but she doesn't have the same resources he does. Mm-hmm. I, I think Fonterial does a very good job with what he has, and he's he's really thrown into the mix. He's, he's thrown into this mix with a bunch of people that he doesn't quite mesh with because they're all very hands-on people. The Infocyte is even farther away from his targets than the Vindicare is. And it's because like Fon is kind of 
he's he's presented as this just nerd and uh, just like a, a keyboard warrior. But I really liked him. I thought his character was really, like you said, it was really cool. He's got all this he, stuff and all these things that he can bring to Among the assassins, he's probably the least modified and he's probably the most human. And he got he he got second closest to taking out the bad guy. So, hey, I, credit where it's due. Yeah, we'll get there when we get there, but they, it was close. But anyway, he and Constantine get shot down and Constantine does say that he is in danger because these guys have big weapons. In fact, the the boss leader has a plasma pistol. And at one point it says if that plasma pistol goes off at this range, it's a mortal shot. It's a plasma rifle. Plasma rifle. Mm-hmm. So he is looking up at this butte above this little conflict going on and he sees just a little glint and he, and he knows what's happening. And then he tells them that, well, you need to get out of here or let us go because the emperor has taken an interest in you now and I bring death. And he just points at a guy and his head explodes, <laughs> which was awesome. This is a really well-written scene because it's like, if you've ever seen the movie The Losers, there's this scene where a guy is standing up against a window and he's got finger guns and he's like, if you move, I'll kill you. And he starts doing the pew, pew, pew thing. And there are bullets going through the windows behind him, killing the guys in front of him. It's yeah. really well written. Right. So I love this scene. Constantine Valdor so evaluates the battlefield and says, all right, this heavy stubber up on this truck is going to be my biggest problem. Second biggest problem is the bandit leader with the plasma rifle. And so he just starts pointing at him and yeah, it, yeah, and, and the Vindicare starts taking him out, he, and he's because he says death and death and death, and every time he says it, bang, 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 another one goes down. Finally, with the bandit leader getting his hand shot off with a gun in it, and then he he uses a karate chop to the neck to kill him. It was pretty sweet, I gotta say. Yeah. So the question is, did Aristide Kell save Constantine Valdor? I think a case could be made that Valdor could could have killed every single one of them if he wanted to. I don't think he needed to. Right. I think he, he recognized that he already had battlefield supremacy, so all he had to do was stand there. Maybe he was worried that if he'd gone on the attack, then Fon Terrell might have taken a bullet on accident. So he's playing it cool and d- does so without without any um, um, collateral damage. So it was an, it was a neat scene. So then we've got Aristide Kell. Then we start to pick up the other ones. So we'll just kind of—I don't remember what order they show up in the book, but Iota, you do the next one. Iota is next, and she is working in this brothel. That she's, a, she's the Calexis, right? So the Calexis is the anti-psyker, and she's working in this brothel trying to track down this Terran warlord who has been defying the Edict of Nikea, which. We know, because we're coming hot off the heels of Burning of Prospero, if you defy the Edict of Nikea, that is a death sentence. And if the Emperor is willing to sacrifice an entire legion for that, what do you think he's going to do to you if you're an independent warlord? So, Iota paints this scene. She's working in this brothel trying to track down this warlord who has a certain taste. And that certain taste is weird psycho women, I guess. I don't know. But it turns out he's also got this uh, this psychic gift, or I, I don't know if it's really a gift, but he's got this talent he's employing along with a bodyguard that is also psychically sensitive, I think. Mm-hmm. 
the point being, that's a big no-no because the only psychers that are allowed at this point are navigators, astropaths, and I think there's like a very narrow window of... Uh, actually, we see it later. There's like a private investigator that shows up that has a Terran-sanctioned sh- psyker that shows up. Right. Anyway, Iota is the... Protophage, I think they call it, the anti-psycho that shows up. and She springs this trap in this brothel and runs down this rogue warlord that's been using uh, psychers without sanction. And her power is, is so intense that when she makes contact with the target, she has this anti psionic device mounted to her head called a animus speculum. I think animus means soul, right? And speculum is like aperture or opening or whatever. Mm-hmm. So when the psychic force comes in to this device, it's then reflected. So the more powerful psyker you are when you fo- when you get hit by that device, it reflects your power at, the, at a similar magnitude. So the more powerful you are, the more powerful you're hit. So when this warlord tries to kill her with like a psychic blaster or uh, I can't remember exactly how it goes... Anyway, when she's targeted by this guy, it's reflected back at him and he just turns to ash. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty daunting uh, that's a pretty daunting fight if you're a psychic and you're trying to combat one of those. And I think in later on down the line there's a story called The Outcast Dead, where a thousand sun space ring who's a very powerful psychic is hit by one of these things, and he weasels his way out of it, and I think it's bullshit. We'll get there when we get there. Anyway, so at that point, Fontariel and Aristide Kell are able to talk to Iota and recruit her for the upcoming mission. And then next on our list is our favorite character, the Guarantee. Hold on, there's one like super creepy thing because the problem with a lot of these assassins is that they are usually pretty highly sexualized in the art and in the even the miniatures to some extent. And when they, they pick her up and get her on the ship, uh, Teriel is there looking at her. And she's remember, she's already turned a guy to ash by kissing him. And she turns to Von Teriel and says, will you kiss me too? So I think that's, yeah, that is a really creepy line, but I think that's important because it shows some level of social interaction, which she does not understand. And that's revealed later on in the book. She's kind of she doesn't get social cues. She doesn't really know how to interact with people. So I, I think that's a really, I don't want to say definitive. It's a a good way to paint her character of trying to interact with people. What do you think? Right. Yes, certainly. I mean, she, so they all kind of come off as autistic a little bit. No offense to any of our autistic listeners, brothers, but I think that James Swallow is trying to show that these are monsters. All of them. They might be heroes. They might be heroes of the Imperium but they are monsters. And when you think about the horrors that the warp has unleashed, the human race has, has created equally terrible things. So there, on the one hand, when you look at a, at a little interaction like that, you have this little bit of sympathy for the character, but also revulsion. And this is, I think at the core of Grimdark where there's a sympathetic response, but also revulsion at what it is. So it's interesting. This is a common theme in regards to pariahs that 40k addresses the pariah that shows up in no no fear 
says that she lived her entire life is a somewhat of an outcast or like being awkward her entire life, like never really making friends, never feeling like she fit in everywhere or anywhere. And then in the Eisenhorn books, we talk about Elizabeth Beckwin, who is also a, a very powerful pariah who had a very troubled life up until she meets Eisenhorn that she never fit any, any, in anywhere. No one really understood her. So she lived kind of this outcast life the in, entire time. Yeah, she's, she's a very tragic character. And you can tell that Eisenhorn's in love with her the whole time. But it, you know it's never going to work out because he's a psycher. She's not. Yeah, big Sam. So now, but I think we get to, is it the guarantee next on the one again, here we have something that is horrible, but also um, funny because he thaws out because they didn't get the coolant leak fixed in time. And so the dude just thaws and goes to his initial training and starts to kill everybody in this facility. The key point being there, these guys are so psychotic they are kept on ice unless they are on, on mission. Yeah. And so he, so when they get down to the facility, they already know that, that they're on the ship and they see something, warning bells going off or whatever. And the guarantee has just gone ape killing stuff. And now the team, such as it is, has to try to bring him down without killing him. And it's going to be very difficult, but they do manage. It's, it's a kind of a close run fight. And I think there's a little bit of a, what we call foreshadowing in the industry where You've got the Vindicare facing down the Garantine in this duel, and the the Vindicare barely makes it out. It's just a matter of seconds that he's got to knock him out before they before the Garantine kills him. And this is played out a little bit later in another scene. Yeah, it's a really intense scene because the, the Vindicare is just pumping round after round after round of set it, or uh, knockout juice into the guarantee and he's just like he is seconds away that the guarantee like breaks the vindicare's rifle and is about to kill him and the the, the guarantee is so juiced up on roid rage he's about to kill this vindicare when he just he keels over knocked out yeah it's Lo- losing really the cool. rifle was a big sad oh yeah because yeah. the the vindicares are tailored to their rifle mm-hmm. they're they're like um they're molded to one another they're they're a very um cohesive unit you know there there is no one without the other now i think we do also at this point get introduced to spear i think spear there's like a little interlude here i'm trying to figure out what chapter it is and that for me is a bit of a criticism in the book there's a lot of it's broken up into these vignettes almost where you're talking about this planet that's being terrorized by this serial killer and they're just these horrific murders. And that's where we meet our antagonist. Yeah. And you don't, not quite sure what it is. There's a guy who's on an airship and he looks across the seat next to him and there's this eyeball sitting there and the eyeball grows into this horrible thing and kills him. And then you also introduce to Yosef Sabrat, who's our kind of everyman investigator dude who's trying to solve these murders the murders also are bringing in the the attention of a. Is he a rogue trader? Is that what we did? Yeah, because he's got the uh, yeah, warrant it's, later. Yeah, it's a rogue trader that that the murderer is after. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting here to talk about how Yosef Sabrat is a reeve. He's like a a planetary law enforcement, and it talks about how the the kind of uh, Terran 
justice system isn't really involved on this planet because they have their own thing, which the, uh, the uh, what do they call them? The, uh, the Judge Dredd guys, the... Um, oh, the Dippus Arbites. Yeah, the, the Arbites. Right. So it this part is interesting to talk about because the Arbites are not, that's the Terran justice system, are not on the planet. It's mm-hmm. left to the local law enforcement, these Reeves, which I think is really cool because it shows how confident the Imperial system is in this planet to maintain their own, right? Yeah, and so this seems like a place that I would want to live, except the because the War Master is mess, mess, messing everything up, the whole place is, is going to hell. Uh, but yeah, I, I and I like this character Yosef. He and he, he's got a a, a good payoff, I would say. So I, I and I do like him and his his devotion to the cause. It's it's kind of heartbreaking because this this dude is a family man. He's got a wife and kid, and he's really invested in being the good guy. So now we do meet our next assassin. That would be Coin the Calidus, and she is. Um, masquerading as a famous actress right and as an actress she's trying to get close to this lord who needs to be killed and but he he's got a pretty decent bodyguard as well this i i was in my mind trying to remember which one was this one and which one was iota because it's kind of a similar story this one is a like a cyberneticist he's very good at uh, the whole cybernetics and the androids and stuff like that mm-hmm. But I can't remember why he's considered to be a rogue element. Is he just dealing with the the traitor forces, or That's is he like that. dabbling in AI or something? He just needs to go is the problem, and so. But I think she she is she does escape from the planet, but she's wounded uh, because she's exposed to hard vacuum. And as she's going, we, we're using the term "she" because that's how she's presented in the book. But but she puts this, she turns her skin into this hard shell to try to survive the vacuum, but she needs a little time on the ship to recover. And then the last one is the Venom. Venom. And that, that is Jenica Solm. Which turns out to be Aristide's sister, correct? Yeah, they're both assassins. They were, so they were siblings growing up and their parents were killed by some feudal warlord years ago on Terra. Mm-hmm. And they had a falling out that it, it's an underlying plot element, or I, I don't know if it's a, it's a character element really. So uh, Aristide and Jenica they have this back and forth very frequently, but she's really important to the story because she is a believer in the imperial uh, truth. Yeah, well, not the imperial the, truth, like the Lectitio Divinitatis. Yeah, so she is a worshiper of the emperor, and that comes into play, and that's kind of our our binding factor. That's what brings our protagonists and antagonists together. Don't you think? Yeah. And, and there, and this thing with the, him and his sister is he got her into this. Like she didn't want to, but because he was willing to go on this assassination run, she got dragged into it as well. And it was kind of against her will. And from the outset, when this team is brought together and they're told who their target is, obviously being the war master, they're all like, well, this is clearly a one way trip. So uh, if you have a sibling out there, if you are trying to convince your sibling to go on a one-way trip, not only is it an uphill battle, but chances are they're going to try and stop you, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, like, if I was trying to convince you that we need to go do go on the one-way trip thing, wouldn't you be like, maybe we shouldn't do that? Yeah, I'd say, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's not 
let's not do yeah, that. Yeah, maybe maybe so there's a better way. Because there is there is a little uh, discussion here where one of the they're he's kind of revealed the mission to them on the ship, and they're like, "What? No, you know where he's going to be? Send the battle cruisers and legions of Astartes and have a have a fight, not six assassins." I think it's the scene with the guarantine. So the guarantine wakes up from his sedation and they have him in this gravity chamber that keeps him like pinned to the floor so he can't move. And they have to convince him while he's under pressure to join them because he's still psychotic from all the the combat drugs in his system. I think that is a really fun scene. And until they tell him that you're going to get a chance to kill Horus... That's what finally convinces him. Well, for that, yeah, okay, I'll calm down. Chance at the big, the big prize. But we also see a little back and forth with Rogel Dorn, and Dorn plays a much larger role in this. And maybe that's why Ridge isn't here today. I love this. We can talk about Imperial Fist without Ridge going. Oh, they're a bunch of fucking nerds. I don't want to talk about them. Oh, let's talk about Iron Warriors. Boo hoo, yeah. fucking you. Ma, Iron Warriors, ma. But Rogel Dorn, he's got a pretty sensible head. You know, he's he's kind of watching. He's against this mission at some level. He wants to do things differently. And we, we saw this in that set of short stories too, didn't we? Where Rogel Dorn is is uh, saying, no, we need to we need to chill out here a little bit. Um, right. And he is... He's, he's on the flight of the Eisenstein too, right? Yeah. That's where we and he is... Time. One of his defining characteristics is that he is overwhelmingly practical. And he's not just thinking about what happens with when... He's not just thinking about killing Horus. He's thinking about what happens when Horus dies, which we see later on in this book, what the, the outcome is. Mm-hmm. And he is... So he he's kind of this... He's the voice of reason in this whole story. And we keep getting back to this debate about is having an assassination the right way to go? Shouldn't we just have a fight? Because he says that assassins are for courtly intrigue, not for war, which kind of makes sense. You know, when you already have your stable empire, you want to keep things bottled up. So if there's somebody who's causing trouble, well, you just have a little surgical strike and get rid of that one person. But attacking a head of state of effectively another. Uh, empire causes this problem with a, a with a vacuum and leadership you don't know what's going to come the next guy could be worse and now you've you've brought more uh you know problems into an already chaotic situation right so the assassin team has a lead that's showing up on is it dagonet mm-hmm. if yeah. we can make contact with the rebel forces on dagonet which is like a a big trade hub, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important to the war movement. And Dagonet was conquered by Horus because it was operated by these uh, these corrupt, this corrupt cast of leaders. And when Horus gets there, he just shoots one of them with his bolt pistol and ends the, you know, there's no invasion. He kills a single leader, demonstrates mm-hmm. his awe and majesty to the world, and they become compliant. It's a very, very easy compliance campaign. And that's fun, that's funny you you mentioned that because this is the opposite of the theme of the story where Horus killed one guy and brought peace but now the Imperium is trying to kill one guy and it's going to cause cause chaos so I'm not sure what James Wall is trying to show by this but it, it's important later on in the story yeah it's we it's weird that Horus gets away with it but nobody else does yeah so 
we're already at like page 230 here, fellas, and this is just getting the team together and setting the stage. The next section of the book is all about the kind of the, the, the setup for what's going to happen next. And you've got a couple of things going on here. The Dagonet system is being invaded by the War Master, and the War Ma- Go ahead. Well, it's actually contested because the rebels and the loyalists are just regular people are fighting against one another. And it seems like the leaders of Dagonet have sided with the war master Mm -hmm. and there is an imperial loyalist element waging a guerrilla warfare against them, but they're on the losing side. And a lot of them are secret emperor worshipers, which comes, comes into play later. And they're, they're referred to as the Theoge, which is the, this imperial cult that is like, it's like a, a sub culture of the Dagonet system. Mm-hmm. So the, the members of the Theoge are eventually, this is who the assassins make contact with and they go to their secret Canyon base and that sort of thing. Alongside that, you've also got running the investigation into these serial killings. Spear is this unstoppable monster that can kill anything. And should we? And then you've got the, uh, the this larger campaign going on in, in the background where there's all these refugee ships coming in from other places, and the the point of it that the assassins are trying to do is they're trying to make sure they can get set up and close enough to the action when Horus lands that they can blow his brains out. That's that's the main the main goal here. So you've got. Spear, who we, we begin to learn a little bit more about. Maybe we should go ahead and talk about what, what Spear is. The word bearers captured a black ship, which is no easy task, but they've captured a black ship. They bombarded it, they beat it to hell, and they found a few survivors. One of them was this psychic knoll who bit the finger off one of the lieutenants and then was targeted by the one of their psychers to kill him, he reflected the psychic energy back and burned the psyker to death. And then they called our old buddy Erebus. Erebus shows up and says, well, this is interesting. Tell me more. And this is just a young man. This sounds like, and they're not sure what he is. There's some, and we find this confirmed later on is that he's probably been genetically engineered to have this kind of gene that reflects back psychic power. So on the one hand, he's described like work said as a psyker on steroids or a, a psychic null on steroids. Who's like an alpha psychic null. On the other hand, he's described as something completely different that has some of those aspects, but also something, uh, something wrong. Because here's the thing, work that librarian that got turned into ash would have known he was a psychic knoll and not used his psychic powers on him. There must have been something different. He wouldn't have been able to because it, if a it spear is our assassin for the emperor because he is a very very powerful psychic knoll. He can get close enough. To, he's got a very special power that can reflect that psychic potential. And so that's why Erebus thinks he's the key to killing the emperor. Hmm. My beef with this story is that if a a, if a pariah is that powerful, a lot of things don't work in this story because any any psychic that gets close to him 
wouldn't be able to use their powers, and any demon that gets close enough to him would just disbind or wouldn't be able to use their powers. So as we find out later on in the story, he's got this demon skin bound to him. But if he is a pariah as powerful as the story describes, that demon wouldn't even be able to make contact for him and might might or contact to him. Because and my reasoning for that is yeah. because as referenced in a lot of the Caiaphas Cain stories, when the psychic blink in those stories gets close enough to a demon or even makes contact with one, their abilities just shut down. In fact, there's one story where uh, Jurgen, the, the psychic or the, the blink from those stories, is, he makes contact with a greater demon of Slavesh, and the demon reacts as though it's been hit with a white hot iron. So That's why I think they're using the term pariah, but I don't think it means what you think it means. As a black pariah, it's something completely different. It could be that he does have a soul, and he's not a pariah in the traditional sense. So I think I'm taking it from a standpoint that this is something completely different we haven't seen before. He's not a pariah in the traditional sense. He doesn't have that hole in the void like Calexis like does, but instead he's just more like a psychic mirror. And so there's not a hole in the warp there. It's just a mirror. And when the psychic power is used against it, poof, it goes. But there's enough little hints in the story for me to say, well, that doesn't quite make sense either. But let's just say Grimdark 40k, that's the thing. It's a little plot hole, maybe. But yeah, clearly, if he was a traditional pariah, you could not attach a parasitic demon skin to him because it would just be annihilated as soon as you tried. And it's a parasitic demon skin that lets him be such an efficient uh, killer. I think it's also important to say, as much as I hate to make excuses for stories, a lot of these stories are based on the exception to the rule, right? Because if every one of these stories was written business as usual, they wouldn't be interesting. So we do have an exception to a lot of what we're used to in this context. And there have been various Warhammer stories that have mentioned the fact that because you have all these trillions upon trillions of human beings... Once in a while, you'll get some sort of a genetic aberration that is so unlike anything they've ever seen before that it is truly unique in the universe. Just because you keep running that iteration of the human genome enough with enough psychic stuff and mutations, eventually you get something we've never seen before, and it's just a one-off, which um, is just interesting to think about when you have that many people. I think a fun... A good way of saying it is if, or a, a good way of putting that into maybe a, a more visual context, if a psyker being born is one in a million, a pariah being born is one in a billion, the, the chances are very small, but the human race is so gigantic at this point, it's bound to happen. Right. And so another thing that this guy can do, um, and I'm not clear, was is this a f- function of the demon skin? Is that if he samples your DNA, he's got you? And that's why he's trying to get this the warrant of trade, because the warrant of trade has a drop of the emperor's blood on it. It's very unclear, because when Erebus talks about the demon skin, he talks about it as a very feral intelligence, no more smarter than like a dog. So I don't think it's the demon skin. I think it's an aspect of spear, which is a criticism of the character because the other pariahs that we see throughout these stories don't pick up on social cues or like how people think, but spear is very good at replicating how humans act. Mm -hmm. So if, 
if he is a standard pariah, just a very powerful one, it doesn't make sense. If he is something different, I guess that's why he can do it. Right. And you see him, he takes on the persona of these characters as he kills them. He takes on their, their genetic, you know, makeup. And he's even at some point you figure out that your, your favorite character, this um, investigator, Yosef Sabrat, Yosef Sabrat has already been taken over by Spear. And it's kind of a surprise. You find out, Oh, he's been taken over. And so Spear eventually he, he gets on the boat of, or the ship of the rogue trader ends up killing his psyker. Go ahead. The, the rogue trader has a warrant of trade dating back to the unification of Terra. Mm-hmm. So this guy has a, basically a document signed in blood by the emperor. And that's why it's important to the story. Right. So he gets on, so Spear gets on the ship and then he, he kills the, this guy who seems like kind of a proto inquisitor, would you say? And takes his, his place. And then he goes to get the warrant of trade, but finds that it's a fake. And the the real one is somewhere else. You find out later that it's actually in the possession of the Theoge, correct? So now it's funny because Spear keeps talking about how annoyed he is that his plan is not going right. He just wanted to get in, get out, and be on his next mission. But there's all these problems. All these problems keep happening. So now he has to go back to the planet. And now you see all this chaos erupting because the the assassins have really put together an effective rebellion on the planet. Horus is from what we know is going down to the planet to get their loyalty. And the assassins know that whatever happens, things aren't going to go well for the rebellion. Regardless, they set up their, their perfect kill shot. Horus goes down there with his big cape on, puts his gun in the air, fires a shot. And then, the assassins act there's the this huge last how did they get they got a, this giant last cannon down there they've got two firing positions set up the vindicare assassin fires a void disruptor round at the void shield protecting the warmaster and it knocks out the shield for a a picosecond like almost no in no time and the Infocyte has a giant microwave cannon set up to nuke Horus's brain as soon as this quarter-sized hole opens up in the void right. shield. Right. So the Vindicare opens a hole and they shoot a microwave beam at the Warmaster and blow his head off. Unfortunately, it was not Horus at all. Horus was still up on the battle barge. And he's Are you familiar with a term called Broken Mirror? What does that mean? That means that it was a decoy. Oh, amazing. Now, here's where my plot hole is, is that how dumb are these assassins to not verify their target? First off, Horus is like twice as tall as your standard space marine. He's huge, yeah. Also, another annoying part of this story is that the writer refers to the Sons of Horus as having slate gray armor. And in these scenes, there are like... There are at least four instances where the writer says that the Sons of Horus have slate gray armor. Maybe that was just their battle armor and they hadn't painted I, it for parade. I don't know. I, I, Oh, yeah. In the, the giant display of bringing compliance to the planet, they're not going to ba- paint their battle armor. Regardless, it seems like an avoidable error for them to somehow really 
understand that this was horse before they before they pulled the trigger. But that's like I've not been to assassin school, but I think that's you learn that on the first day. I would I would guess. Look, man, I'm gonna be honest. I grew up out in the country, and like the first rule of hunting stuff was always confirm your target. Right. Right. So anyway, there's an aftershock. Um, the the this is a you were saying that he Horace likely thought this was happening and sent Luke Sederay down there to get killed. When you expand on that a little bit, yeah. So at the end of the story, you know Horace is still alive. The it's very clear that the assassination attempt fails, but at the end of the story, it's implied that Horace sent Luke Sederay in his place. Because Luke Sedere had been very outspoken of what the War Master, his plans, basically, you know, he's had a little bit of pushback and he's basically trying to fill that Naismith role that Garvia Loken was fulfilling in the first couple of books. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to set himself up as a, you know, the next in line for the Mornival should that position ever come open. But it's implied that Horace's command style has changed since then instead of like listening to his subordinates and you know taking other people's feedback into account Horace has been very has become very didactic and very dictatorial in how he commands it's my way or the highway by god I will be the or I guess by the warp I will be the next emperor so help me and no one will stand in my way. I will have no more pushback. I will have no more naysayers. It's my way. There is nothing else. And that's the implication that we get at the very end of the book. Uh, in the meantime, you do have some pretty cool little vignettes where you, you finally see the Garantine just unleash on a couple of its startes, which is pretty sweet. Because um, he's been wanting to know if he could kill one. And he does. The Astartes does not go down easy, though, for sure. And is it him and, Co- and Coin? Yeah, so he and Coin are in this burned-out building post-assassination because as soon as the Warmaster proxy have been has been killed, the sons of Horus just go fucking nuts because what do you do if you're a highly trained killing machine and your commander has just been killed? Mm-hmm. You go nuts and you level the city. So just, oh, the, then they start opening fire on the crowd just immediately. Yeah, and not just the crowd, orbital bombardment start coming in around the world. Yeah. So they are now dead set on killing this planet because their war master has been, you know, I say that in quotations, the war master has been killed. Mm-hmm. And in the extraction, the Garantine and coin come across this Astartes that hasn't pinned down in a building and the Garantine just goes nuts on the thing. So it's a pretty fun fight scene. It talks about how, because the Garantine's not modified in the same way as the Astartes, he's got a combi bolter, that is a smaller gauge, so it's it's less powerful than the Stardis mm-hmm. Bolter, but it's it's a cool dynamic that we see in that scene. Right. Um, he eventually dies by going nuclear, right? Like he sets his um, all all of his combat drugs to go on overload. So the the thing about the uh, Vindicare, or sorry, not Vindicare, the Evasor Assassins is that they are so pumped up, up they are so pumped up on drugs that if they sustain enough, enough damage, their bodies melt down into this fusion explosion. Mm-hmm. And so the Garantine, to buy coin time to get away, the Garantine charges the Sestardi's line, and when he dies, as soon as his heart stops, his body melts down and takes a bunch of space marines with him. Then we start to see 
the, the rest of them get killed by Spear. Uh, Spear, he, I think he does actually get the the warrant of trade, right? He does lick the drop of blood from it, and he goes so crazy. So it should be said, the Venom assassin bails from the mission. She gets called away because she's a emperor worshiper. She gets called away by the other emperor worshippers for a higher purpose. So she bails on the mission, and the rest of the, the crew is like, you know, what the fuck? We're supposed to be a team here. But she disappears, and she's off being talked to by this this other emperor worshiper saying, we have this holy relic. Your new mission, higher than all others, is to keep this safe. And it's revealed that it's this warrant of trade with the drop of the emperor's blood on it. Now, how quickly would you poop your pants if we were going through, like, our dad's stuff and found a warrant of trade in there and it turned out to all be true and we've inherited it? That would be a real culture shock. And it's like... And the ship is in orbit. Yeah, it's like right above us. Like, but no, behind the moon. And we just have to go <laughs> We just have to go, go up to space and we can be road traders now. Just think how different your life would be. I It would be a Voxcast instead of a podcast. I would still I would still maintain my listeners. Yep. Hey, here we are on board our new ship, everybody. Hey, that might be a fun idea for a little YouTube show. Oh, dude, I'm, I've got a ton of, ton of ideas for that. I just need to figure out the whole YouTube thing. Okay, so does she die? Jennifer, Jennifer. Jenica kind of um she's mortally wounded well not mortally wounded she's she she is wounded very badly but Iota Iota goes to recover her and bring her back Mm -hmm. but as they are rendezvousing and Iota's trying to bring her back our villain Spear shows up yeah and they have a little psychic duel in the I really thought that the Calexus was going to win because I've always thought the Calexus were like the baddest of the badass because of this ability they have, but she goes down pretty quickly. So that's my argument for why Spear is just a very powerful pariah, because if the Animus Speculum reflects psychic ability, that doesn't happen when she hits Spear with it, because there's nothing there for the Animus Speculum to target. Yeah, but isn't there some deal where they can also just absorb it from the app from the air from the but if there there are only two other people there there's the the emperor worshiper and there is jenica so how much psychic potential is in that airspace for it to be massively effective to affect this alpha pariah well listeners put it in the chat whenever this goes up anywhere and see if you have an insight into it because this one of the things you think if we pull the thread too much the whole thing's going to unravel a little bit but it's just warp nonsense. I, it is warp nonsense, but I think the the threads are all right there. They're very easy to grab onto. That that's the big concern, I think. Uh, let's see. Next, he takes down Fawn Terriel. Fawn had a pretty pretty quick, almost got him. He because he had these grenades that he he th- he throws one of them at the at Spear, who catches it and says, "It smelled like dead stars." And then was going to throw it away, but was that a little like hint at Necron technology? That's interesting. I wonder if it had any any correlation to how the Catan work because they they were they ate stars basically. Yeah, and, and they, they're they're also kind of in I think the modern lore, especially their references being very anti psyker Right. Likewise with the and here's another thing we could get into this with the Tyranids because the Tyranids form a, a psychic blockade wherever they go but they utilize psychers as well uh, 
topic for another day. But anyway, he a spear is really disoriented by when this grenade goes off. And then Fawn has this gun that he can shoot him with. But doesn't Arashid tell, you know, don't engage, don't engage? Yeah, I think Arashid calms him and tells him to pull back because Coin and Arashid are on their way. But, you know, it's a little tragic before anything else can happen. Spear gets up and kills Teriel. Oh, he rips his chest open and it's just oh, it's horrible. Vicious. There's, you know, I, something I forgot to talk about. There's some pretty good body horror in here. There's like a couple of scenes. That it's like straight out of John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm-hmm. where these these bodies are just like mutating and uh changing in these very horrific ways and it's it's not really plausible there are things coming out of like this guy's chest and oh it's horrific yeah. and so longbeards if you want to have a little bro time and bond with your fellow longbeards go watch the thing again it's really good uh it's got all the best stuff and um i wouldn't call it a satisfying ending but it's a very longbeard ending then, uh, then he a coin goes after after him, and they have a duel, and th- another very sad end. Eventually, spear cuts both of her hands off, and then throws her on a, a spar of rubble, and she's impaled, and now she's dead. But Aristide comes through in the end, and Warwick, how does this how does this end? Yeah, the the fight with coin was all a setup to lure spear out in the open where Aristide could get a shot on it. And, and there's been a little uh, tension between Coin and Aristide this whole time because Coin's like, I should be in charge here. I've got the most experience. But uh, Aristide does say that in the end, despite Coin's instinct to... Because Coin references earlier in the book, you know, if I feel like I'm overwhelmed, I might just run. Mm-hmm. And Aristide says, your discipline is going to have to be greater than your survival instinct on this one because it's, you know, we're in it for the species, boys and girls. Aristide does get the headshot off on Spear, and it's like this, like almost a flechette round where it it splinters on impact and it just pulverizes what's left of Spear's head. And it just, it, it says it bounces around in the cavity and, and turns the brains into mush. Right, and so that that seems to have killed our antagonist here. And when Kel approaches the body, the, the demon skin is not dead yet. And so it wakes up and starts to mutate in these horrible, horrific ways and attack Kel at point. It kind of turns into like a chaos spawn almost and comes after him. And so he has to unload all of his phosphorescent rounds from his, from his, his uh, pistol and then burns the thing. And that's and finally the end. Here, here is where it almost kills him, but all the absorbed personalities that Spear has accumulated over the past couple of months, they are able to kind of remember themselves and stop this chaos spawn in his tracks for a split second, just long enough for Kel to unload into it and destroy it. Right. And all along the ghost of Yosef Sabrat is still in Spears' mind. For some reason, he's not been able to completely suppress Yosef's personality. And Yosef, who is this this um, very devoted reeve of his planet and a, a really solid lawman, every time you think that Spears got the upper hand on something, you hear Yosef shouting, no, 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 no. And then you'll see Spears smashing his head against the wall to try to get the, the, the voice out. 
every time that happened, I was kind of cheering. I'm like, yeah, go, Yosef, go, Yosef, go, go, go. You know, keep the pressure up. And eventually Yosef does, you know, he's the one who wins. And it's because of his discipline and his faith and his and his duty and all those sorts of things we like to see in a, in a true hero keep coming out. And this is what eventually defeats the, the this monster's spear. I think it's interesting to talk about how in 40K, faith is an overwhelming factor. It's It's very constant. But in 30K, it's this very budding factor that we see more and more frequently as the stories go on. But, you know, this very devoted man is able to maintain himself in the belly of the beast just long enough to win the day. So Yosef Sabrat gets a very satisfying ending there because he's able to stop the bad guy just long enough to win. And I think it's a lesson to the reader because we see that Spear is very much depicted as a monster, but so are the assassins. And they're just two monsters fighting each other. But in the end, who wins? It's a man. And the man who's got duty and faith is the one who, who wins the day. And we keep seeing this theme all the way through all of these these stories. Those, those ones who hang on to their humanity, even in a small way, are the ones that will eventually win against, against the powers of the war. I think that's interesting because like in Flight of the Eisenstein, even though Nathaniel Garrow is uh, a space marine, a very, very skilled space marine, in all of his most trying moments, he's able to lean into his faith and win the day. So, you know, these very ordinary characters, because Garrow is just a, another space marine like all the other space marines, his defining characteristic is being faithful. So it's a very strong point in the Warhammer universe. Now, I did find the part where we, we find out what happens to the Venom assassin, Jenniker. She actually commits suicide because Aristide goes to save her and he's got her, but she gets a vial of poison out of her her hand and or out of her armor and pricks her finger with it. And she 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 dies that way because she's done with it. She's dying anyway. And she says, do this. So he's got to go finish his mission, but she says, don't do this for revenge. Do it for the God Emperor. And she, because she's a believer, now she's trying to give him that same faith. Now he does win, but in the end, he gets back onto the ship, goes into orbit, and decides that he still needs to try to kill Horus. And then he rams the battle barge with their ship, and it does nothing. Right. So, like, okay, he's got this cloaked vessel. And he thinks he can get close enough to the battleship. How does he know at what point on that heavily armored battleship the Warmaster is? There we go again. You got to confirm your target, boys. But I think he he wasn't going to get out because I think by this time the navigator's dead and the captain's dead and all that. So well, the the ship they're on splits into two parts. They've got like a, a, a detachable landing craft that oh, right. he he rams the battle barge with, and then he sends the rest of the vessel with the navigator and the right, astropath right. back to Terra to, to carry the message that the assassination attempt failed. Mm-hmm. But he sacrifices himself anyway on the altar of doing a okay job, I guess. I don't know. He didn't. He fails, ultimately, because at the very end of the story, Horus is still alive. And as much as I hate to say it, this is the not the last time we see Aristide Kell. Okay. He's not dead. So we do have a little bit of a discussion between Horus and Erebus, don't we? 
Right, because it's revealed that Erebus used this warp-born assassin monstrosity to try and kill the Emperor. And Horus said that um, we're not supposed to do that, right? So Erebus gets addressed down. Horus's mentality is like, look, if we assassinate the Emperor, that just makes him a martyr, mm-hmm. more or less. And then, you know, Erebus is smart enough to know that, well, if the Hor- if the Warmaster just set up Look, Ceterate to be killed in his place. What's he going to do to me if I start back talking him? So it's interesting to see that little discussion between the two. And then the last scene, if I'm not mistaken, is on back on Holy Terra. Right. It's the conclave of the Master of Assassins and all his followers, his subordinates, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they're lamenting that this didn't work. And I think Dorne is there and the Sigilite is there. Well, the meeting starts off as just another, you know, business as usual. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they get word back that the mission failed. And, of course, the, the Master of Evisers is raging that, you know, one of his best has been lost. And then all the others are like, you know, we lost our best, too. Uh-huh. And before the meeting can progress much farther, one of the walls caves in and they're immediately accosted by the Imperial Fists, led by Rogel Dorn. Uh-huh. And Dorn says, you know, we just recovered the remains of your ship and we know what you tried to do. You tried to assassinate the War Master. And now, because of because you did that, the fallout is the Sons of Horus are annihilating that planet and fortifying it. If you had just left it alone, we could have rolled in, crushed the human garrison, and called it good. But now it'll be legionaries dying to take that world back. Because yeah. And there still would have been towns and fields and production facilities and all that in humans. But because of this thing, it's, it's no longer going to be allowed. And... Not only is it that planet, the rest of because that world has fallen, it was a major trade hub for that system. Now that that world has fallen, the rest of that entire system is suffering because this assassination attempt failed. And so, the um, in the end, what we're left with now is is Dorn in charge of the assassins? Not quite, because you know Dorn is raging that they need to stop the assassinorum. Has functioned across the galaxy up until this point as the Emperor's quiet blade, as they say, kind of this unseen force to keep people in check. But in the middle of Dorne's raging, he has called out Malkador, he's called out Constantine Valdor. You know, before he can get much farther, another voice chimes in and says, that's enough. And from where all the the shadows pooled in the room, it begins to illuminate, and now, the let, Emperor let me, steps forward. Let me read that bit. He beckoned them all to stand, and as one they obeyed, and yet in his presence each of them felt as if they were still at his feet. His aura towered over them, filling the emotions of the room. Very cool scene, and the Emperor steps forward and says, Too long has the Assassinorum functioned as my quiet blade. Mm -hmm. It's time that they are seen to be called to... It is time to bring them into the light. Right. So now it'll be uh, not just an open secret, but it'll be flat out, you know, I guess you'd call it state sanctioned assassins. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of interesting implications there. Yeah. So he will use them, but now it's, you've got some 
military oversight over how these are being used. And, um, and in a, in a way that is going to further the war effort, not make it more difficult. So in the end, we have a lot of interesting themes, some interesting characters. I think the plot holes just gave us more stuff to talk about because now we can have a fuller discussion about what psychic ability is and what does it mean to be a pariah. And so I think this kind of scratched a lot of itches for me. The the plot holes of this story are more frustrating than infuriating for me, which I think is fine. I think that's part of the hobby. That's more or less why I like these stories. So it's definitely something to talk about. I would like to hear a lot of feedback from our listeners on what they think of Spear and the story altogether. So Right, because I could see a criticism of this being that um, it, it doesn't really move the narrative or something like that. Well, we don't hear about Horace going to his next stop, or we don't hear about Jagtai Khan and what he's been up to. And these are just a bunch of side characters on something that doesn't really matter that much. But I, this is the kind of book I'd like to see more of. I, I like these kind of adventure stories and, I think it does right what the Battle for the Abyss did wrong. If we were to compare those two stories, um, it might be interesting for you to to go back and and look at Battle for the Abyss. It's like, well, why did this story work and that one didn't? Can you think of anything off the top of your head? Uh, I think we have a better villain in this story. Like, even though there's some contention about if he does or doesn't work, he is a, he's more than the mustache twirling villain. He is a monster. He is depicted as a monster the entire time. And he's even sympathetic to a point because an aspect of him is still Yosef Sabrat. So it's just a, a better villain. I think our characters are more well-written. I think we had... In Battle for the Abyss, we had several ultramarines that were just automatons. I think the, you know, the Thousand Sun in that story is basically Mary Sue. He can do whatever he wants with his powers. But the limitations on the characters that we have in this book are much more well-written. It makes them more, I don't want to say relatable, but more understandable. Yeah, and I really feel like I could identify with multiple characters in the book and understand their motivations and what they were doing. They weren't just kind of random characters because in battle for the abyss, there were a few characters I liked, but we didn't get very much of them. And there was like, Oh, I wanted to see more of that one, but then they're just gone in two seconds. Yeah. Like, uh, so we've got the, uh, the ultramarines captain, who's kind of our main character, but he's got like a best buddy who gets a raw deal in the story. And it's like, I could have taken a lot more character interaction with him just interacting in that story, not because I liked that character, but I think it would have added more dynamic to the the story that it was missing. Uh, readers, I would say, go ahead, give Nemesis a try. I think it was a fun romp. There might be some stuff that frustrates you, but um, I read it pretty quick. Once I sat down, it was, it was, I wanted to finish it. So I think as far as the story moving the needle, not a whole lot. I think of discussing the overwhelming narrative of war is the most important part because there are so many implications to all the actions happening throughout this galaxy that we don't really talk about, you know, but now in future stories, we'll think about like, okay, if the good guys win here, what is the the wider theater? Like what else is going to happen if these guys win or those guys lose whatever? Well, and I think it answers an important question, which is something you fairly commonly see in nerddom. It's the it's the problem with Frodo and Sam 
why didn't they just have the eagles fly them to the volcano? You know, then, right? Because if the great eagles had just flown... They would have gotten killed by fell beasts. Well, Shut up. Yeah, I know, but but that's where some people will say, well, why didn't they just do it the easy way? Likewise, people would say, well, why didn't they just assassinate Horus? Because the whole thing revolves around him. So this story answers that question. This is why you can't assassinate Horus. And then you get to have the whole battle. Yeah, it's that's a good way of putting it. It's like, why the, the easy way isn't necessarily the right way. And if they had killed Horus, as they did later, that doesn't necessarily solve your problem. Because you still have 10,000 more years of war after that. Despite Horus being dead, Chaos Space Marines didn't just go away. Mm -hmm. So we know later on down the line, there is still this horrific future to look forward to, despite the most evil man in the galaxy being destroyed. Well, it's the Death Star problem too, right? You destroy the Death Star and you still get two more movies after episode four, right? Empire Strikes Back. Oh, right. But if we just rebuild the Death Star, don't we? (laughs) Right. They'll just build another one. Yeah, that's the thing with the with the with the uh, Empire. They'll just build another one, and then you get it again. Were there other Were there any other Star Wars movies? No, there are only six. Anyway, same same with the Indiana Jones movies. There's only three. There's only three. I heard that too. Well, is there anything else we want to cover tonight? Gosh, I don't know. I think we had a really good talk here. I had a lot more fun talking about this story than just reading it on my own. So I'm glad we did this. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was interesting not having Brandon here for a book. That's the first one. He is on vacation right now, or he will be very soon anyway, with his family. So we won't say where he's at, but he's probably eating a lot of pasta. Yeah, maybe. Or some very good pizza. Probably drinking a lot of wine. We'll see. Can can you get... Shiner Bach where he's at? I, I don't think so. He'll have to make do with, uh, you know, the regular vintage or the, the standard vintage over yeah, there. I know it's there. He's not going to like it. But anyway, <laughs> um, I would say, again, as we try to cover in a lot of these books, we're trying to bring out some of the themes, especially the very sci-fi themes. When you're reading the book, don't just get stuck on the characters. Try to figure out what the author is saying. You'll have a much more interesting time uh, trying to figure out why he wrote what he wrote. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know we don't always nail all these books, but I feel like some of them we definitely catch a stride, and this is one of them. So I've had a great time talking about this. Maniple, you're an awesome guest, and we like having you here. So yeah, Why don't you plug the socials? Yeah, definitely. Go ahead and look us up on Twitter at LegionCast, a Horse Heresy podcast, and interact with us there. I occasionally post pictures of what we've been working on, what we're talking about and what uh, upcoming episodes will be on the docket and shoot us an email at legioncast18 at gmail.com and just send us a message about anything you got to say. We've got some awesome mail uh, actually just checked and we've got another one we're going to be responding to in the next hobby roundtable, I think, or maybe we'll wait for Brandon on that one. We'll see, but get in contact with us there and let us know what you think. Don't forget to leave us a rating on Apple and Spotify, and a comment. Share us out there to your local gaming group and let us know what you think. Thanks for stopping by, everybody. One thing I'd like to see would be your library or your hobby space. Send us a picture of that. Yeah, we will review your hobby space in your library, so let us know what you have for a collection. Until next time, folks, listen to Fortunate Son or whatever Brandon says. (laughs) 